This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today. And as usual, I'm joined by Mark Galley. Hey, good editor morning. Editor-in-chief. I just had to get that in there. Thank you. You're welcome. Appreciate it. I, I need the strokes. Some days I need the strokes. <laughs> we just need to be honest so that when you know push comes to shove and people criticize the podcast, they, they know. know who to criticize. Exactly. All right. <laughs> but if it goes well, it's you they should talk to. Okay. Wow. Thank you. So humble. All right. Well, Mark, who is joining us this week? Well, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with Daniel M. He's the founder and director of Church Multiplication for NewChurches.com at Lifeway Christian Resources. He's also the author of No Silver Bullets, Five Small Shifts That Will Transform Your Ministry, as well as Planting Missional Churches, Your Guide to Starting Churches That Multiply. Hey, Daniel. How's it going? Hey, great. It's great to be with you guys. Where are you based out of? So I am currently living in Nashville, but I'm Vancouver, Canada, born and raised. So <laughs> So what's it like to be a Canadian in Nashville? That's what I want to know. Well, my wife is a uh, Southerner at heart. Uh, I think she was just born in the wrong place. <laughs> she uh, she totally fits in. For me, uh, it's it's definitely been a, a little bit of an adjustment to you know learn Southern culture. I definitely love the barbecue here. So, <laughs> and how about country music? Uh, no, I'm not a country music fan, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. But uh, a live concert's not too bad. I was gonna say, okay. So my one question about Nashville is, did you get into the Predators at all? Given that you are Canadian, and most Canadians I know like hockey. Well, all of a sudden, I became a celebrity because everyone wanted to know what the Canadian thought about hockey. <laughs> And they're all asking about rules. Up until that point, they're like, hockey? Who plays hockey? Everything's college football. Football is huge down here, which I don't, I mean, I'll watch, but I don't really fully enjoy it as much as hockey. So all of a sudden people are like, what's an offside? What's icing? What's this? What's this? And they just kept on asking me. And then the Preds lost and everyone, you know, everything kind of went back to normal and it (laughs) became a football town. So. It's kind of funny, though, for people to be like, oh, we, we have a Canadian here. Let's bring in the Canadian. <laughs> oh, totally. totally. And it's everything they think about Canadians as it relates to hockey is true for me because I love hockey. So <laughs> I didn't help the stereotype. All right. Well, that's cool. We like sports around here, so we're happy to talk about them all the time. But today we are not talking about sports. We are going to talk about churches, actually. So has one of the biggest trends in evangelical churches been eclipsed by a new one? Earlier this week, one of Texas's largest multi-site congregations, the Village Church, announced that it would be transitioning into five distinct congregations over the next five years. This news came several years after its Denton location became an independent congregation, quote, in part because Denton leaders and members didn't want to build their strategy on the Matt Chandler brand, as CT reported back in 2015. This move also follows several months after Tim Keller's New York City Redeemer Presbyterian announced that its three sites would soon become autonomous. Multi-site congregations number more than 5,000, and researchers say this trend is as ubiquitous as the megachurch movement was 20 years ago. So what does this news about these high-profile churches signal about the next era of multi-sites? 
Before we get into this discussion with Daniel, I want to take the time to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by subscribers to Christianity Today magazine. You can get a subscription at orderct.com slash quick to listen. And since we're talking about churches, one of the biggest reasons that I went to church or the church building, at least growing up, was because I was part of Awana, which we have mentioned is part of our cover package for the October issue. So we have an article there about Awana and also Bible Study Fellowship, um, which was something that I did not participate in, but I had a lot of friends who also were really big fans of that. So we really do a deep dive into kind of looking at these parachurch Bible ministries and the state of them. And, and how they're shifting and changing as the culture and the church is shifting and changing. I think that that's what's most interesting to me. Yeah, the BSF article was all about reaching millennials with the Bible. There you go. Yeah. Which is, yeah. It, I mean, there it, for, it, now, the culture I come out of was is unfamiliar with both of those movements uh, where I was raised in California. But since I've been in the Midwest, I recognize these are absolutely huge in the evangelical world. Well, and, and, Mark is a fellow Californian. That's where I learned about well, these. Well, then somehow I was really <laughs> isolated from the... No, I think I think you're right, though. There's If we probably went further back in both of their history, there's probably reasons why certain of them yeah. cropped up at particular churches. And I think both of them... People that are really big fans of them will attest that you end up learning a lot about scripture through these types of programs. Um, but it is interesting to think about how a different generation is going to like understand and make scripture applicable and even do stuff kind of like scripture memorization in this particular era. Um, especially, you know, I think that one of the big reasons why it was always like scripture memorization was popular for Awana is like, well, will you always have your Bible on you? And to some extent, that answer has shifted as people now have phones. So, yeah, exactly. Anyway, I don't want to get too big on a tangent there. But anyway, those are both worth your time. Highly recommend both of those pieces. You can get them in our October issue at orderct.com slash quick to listen. Again, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right. So before we ask Daniel all of our questions, Mark, I didn't know if you just had some sort of gut reaction to this news coming out of the Village Church. Well, I was interested as a former pastor and someone who's followed the uh, multi-site movement uh, somewhat from afar, but more as an intellectual interest. I couldn't uh, decide whether these pastors were trying to create new denominations or what exactly was going on and how that would evolve and develop. I think the move of at least these couple of churches back to independent congregation is is pretty interesting. I, I'm frankly a little bit mystified as to what's going on underneath all that, and I'm I'm really glad Daniel's here to help us think that through. Yeah, mystified is a way that I would kind of describe my reaction to. So both of these churches have really high-profile pastors. Matt Chandler and Tim Keller are names that evangelicals who have never even attended these churches with many evangelicals would be familiar with. And so I'm really, I was kind of trying to figure out what to feel about when you know that there's a big personality that's associated with the church and then, you know, multi-site in some ways allows for that personality to kind of get bigger without actually having a giant like place where your church meets. And so I'm just wondering if there's any type of reflections about like the way that celebrity works, you know, that's kind of getting behind these thoughts. Well, one one additional bias I have in all this is coming out of a, a denomination myself and being a part of the denomination today. Uh, I worry about congregations that are in fact independent from a larger structure. And so this is just another move that on the surface appears to uh, exacerbate that 
problem in my mind. But uh, Daniel may not think it's a problem, and it may not be exasperating it. So I'll look forward to our conversation. So Daniel, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the multi-site movement? You guys did a fantastic job setting the conversation up, and it's something that uh, is definitely noteworthy to talk about in light of the recent news. But when it comes to multi-site, it's, it's hard to pinpoint a particular or single church, you know, that kind of started the movement in North America, because a lot of the churches that we often, I guess, associate multi-site with, you know, like like a Willow Creek or Saddleback or uh, New Spring or Village, you know, you just kind of put all these big life church, you, you put a lot of these big mega multi-site churches and you're like, well, yeah, they've all kind of been doing them for, for over 10, 15 years. The thing is, a lot of them really did start around the same time. And there's even some who say, oh, and then they and they say, well, we kind of started even before everyone. And, and we brought in, remember those video carts, the ones with VHS and, and oh, the yeah. TV would, would be on a cart you bring in. Uh, you know, someone would be like, well, we had to do that first. And there's a church in Canada, the one with uh, Bruxy Cavey, um, the meeting house, you know, they started super early too. So it's it's kind of hard to, to say who is the church that really did start it. But the genesis, I guess the reason why a lot of these churches were starting it was it was kind of like, hey, instead of moving to a new building, it was a way for them to expand their reach because their church, it was really a response to growth and for them to facilitate the growth that was already happening. It seems like it was a response to growth, but also at a unique moment in terms of technological capacity as well. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, the cost of doing multi-site today is significantly cheaper than what it what it used to be. For you to actually do live preaching or even just to record, you know, recording was one thing, but even just to do live preaching, a lot of times, a lot of these churches would have to set up satellite networks or they'd have to run fiber, which would be, which was just incredibly expensive at that time, where they'd have a runner who would record it on DVD and pass it over and they'd have a lot of backups. So what it used to be is very different from what it is today. But yeah, it really is kind of this response to growth. Just as a side note, I have been under the impression that Randy Pope out of Atlanta was kind of the creator of that, but you wouldn't necessarily agree with that either. Yeah, I mean, you you stick all these guys in, a, in the same room together and <laughs> it's an interesting conversation. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, well, because here's the thing. A lot of them didn't even know that it was called multi-site and a lot of them didn't even know that other churches were doing it. So for these churches... As they were responding to growth, it's not like they turned to a book because books the book a book wasn't written on the subject at that time. They were really praying about it, seeking the Lord, trying to figure out how do we how do we facilitate this growth? And in a sense, they all kind of came a lot of them really came up with it on their own. And then they discovered, oh, you're doing it too. You're doing it. Oh, how, let's learn together. And that's kind of how a lot of our literature has formed to this day. So in other words, you're saying it was it was pretty autonomous in kind of the way that it started. I'm curious about why these churches did not just say we want to get a bigger building. Why? What was the appeal of having a particularly different campus? Let's kind of go back to early 2000s, late 90s. You know that kind of era where churches were building bigger buildings, right? I mean that was. This era of, hey, let's, you know, let, let's build a 2,000 seat auditorium. Let's do a 3,000 seat auditorium. And they just kept on going bigger, bigger, bigger. But a lot of sometimes it was cost prohibitive. So even take a look at 
Life Church, for example, on how they started. And it was not like, you know, we think Life Church today with Craig Rochelle is, you know, they're massive, they have a huge budget and all this stuff, but they weren't always like that, right? They weren't always like that. So part of it was, hey, how do they how do they facilitate growth? You even take a look at Seacoast, for example, who is another one of those churches that are like, hey, they jumped in super, super early and are one of the innovators there. It's like, hey, how do we how do we just facilitate growth? And instead of buying a new building, because a lot of our congregation is our, our college students, you know, how can we actually continue to rapidly multiply and grow without getting a massive mortgage? You had all these churches kind of like embracing multi-site as a way to to keep their brand in some ways intact. But from what I understand, it wasn't necessarily like in some cases they would always set up a version of their church. In some cases, they were actually like merging with existing congregations as well. Yeah, the merging component of multi-site is more recent. Uh, it's been more of a recent thing because merging is really a whole other kind of can of worms, <laughs> you know, best practices on how do you merge in what instances should you merge? And if you merge, should the old congregation, what should we do with that leadership? And should the congregation should, you know, be shut down for a little bit? So that that is a it really is a variable in the whole multi-site conversation. But it wasn't necessarily it was really honestly, it was it was a response to, hey, how do we how do we not build a bigger building? How do we not move out to the suburbs? How do we just continue to do what we're doing, where we're at, and continue to reach the people that are coming, that are driving in? Now, Morgan just used the, the term church wanting to further its brand, and that is a language we we do hear used. Is that Would that be a, a language that uh, leaders of multi-site would use to talk about what they're trying— one of the things they're trying to do. And that's that's such a sticky word because it's—you uh, <laughs> know, if you say the word flower— Right. If we say use, you know, if we say flower, we all have something coming up in our mind. Right. Some people think it's what you use to bake bread. Other people are thinking uh, a rose. Another person is thinking a tulip and another. Right. So and someone who's gluten free is thinking, eh, you know, what I used to be able to, you know, that fluffy bread or that croissant that I can't have anymore. And they're like, oh, I need to use rice flour and this or that. It's right. So we, we all have the, the word brand is a little bit of a polarizing word in the church world. Right. But if you think of uh, every church, whether you're single location, multi-site, or even if you're a, a denomination or a network, every one of those, they have a brand. Right. It's it's because it's kind of the mark of who they are. It's their logo. It's their vision. It's it's partly, you know, what they're doing in the community and their impact. But if we kind of throw around brand with the word multi-site, all of a sudden we get these images of celebrity pastors taking over, shutting down the old churches, Walmart coming into town, shutting all the mom and pop stores. You know, that's kind of the word that we have anytime we associate, you know, brand with multi-site. So I'm a little hesitant with that word. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. I'm wondering, just to kind of like go back to like the definition of multi-site, is multi-site restricted to churches where everyone, regardless of location, is hearing the same message? Or does multi-site also refer to churches that may be part of a network but have their own teaching staffs? Yeah, multi-site in its, in its kind of most standard, generic, all-encompassing definition is, is, is really this. Multi-site is a, and this is from my book, Planting Missional Churches, that I did with Ed Stetzer. We wrote a book because the book's on church planting. Everything I do is, you know, with newchurches.com is church planting, multi-site multiplication. So we had to address this in our church planting book. I'll, I'll just read this sentence from the book. Multi-site is defined as one church 
that has two or more locations with a shared leadership, budget, vision, and board. So I did not talk about preaching, right? Did not talk about video. I did not talk about, you know, kind of the nuts and bolts of how ministry is done. It's really this idea of one church in more than one location with a shared leadership, budget, vision, and board. So that assumes that different different multi-sites have different strategies in terms of, take preaching, for example. Completely, completely. What in your experience do you find makes it hard for congregations to sustain this type of model? So what I love about this question is this is something that I've been wrestling with and even had a conversation with Josh Patterson, who is one of the lead pastors at Village Church, before they kind of publicly announced what they were doing this last week. But it's just this whole idea of intuitive leadership, right? So if you think about the churches that are doing multi-site well, and a lot of the churches that we associate multi-site with, they're the ones that are kind of big, mega, multi, but there are a lot of churches that may be 500 people or 1,000 people, and they have multiple sites, right? And you have never read about them in in any list of multi-site churches or any list of rapidly growing churches. You, you They don't appear in those lists, but they are multi-site and they are reaching their area. Now, what makes multi-site such a hard model to sustain is in order to sustain multi-site, you don't learn what you need to learn in seminary, hmm. right? Semin- and I'm thinking back to my seminary education and, you know, the Greek, the Hebrew, the history, the theology, the one or two church practice classes, you know, just all of this. It's, it's, it's not, our seminaries are not training systems thinkers as it relates to multi-site. So when you look at multi-site churches that are doing it really well, right, you almost need a supply chain manager type of person. And not to, you know, cross the boundaries too much with, oh, you know, this, you know, you're just talking about business, 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 and bringing that into the church. But no, for a multi-site model to say, hey, leadership is so complex, because now you're not just talking about one congregation that has enough trouble in and of itself to communicate, you know, for the children's minister to communicate with the youth pastor. And, the, the you know, there's enough communication difficulties in one location, right, that now you look at multiple locations, multiple leadership structures, how do you create consistency in and amongst all that? And how do you have the right leadership that can do that and have put the right pulse on it? It's very complex. So the number of leaders that, number one, intuitively know how to do that, you know, it's very small. But then you also need training in order to, ha- you know, in order to know how to lead in that way, in that complex way. And that's just not something that pastors are typically trained for. You talked about the multi-site having one leadership board, but it sounds like you're also saying that there are still leaders at the at the various sites that kind of manage things on that site, and their people you have to stay in clear communication with as well. Then, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just think about it like this: so you have you have you know a single location, right? If you have a single location, you have a church in your neighborhood or in your city. And and you're trying to figure out, okay, yes, there's a senior pastor, yes, there's a lead pastor, and then you have associate pastors, right? So just think about this whole idea of associate pastors. You're not, you're leading, they're typically probably going to lead maybe an outreach ministry or discipleship ministries or whatnot. They're leading a ministry, so they're in charge, but they're not fully in charge because they're not the lead pastor. Right. So that's that's one thing to navigate. And it's typically fine because you have a lot of face time. There's trust that can be built in that way. Now, talk, think about multi-site. You have a multi-site church and, and you, you'll have multiple locations and typically every location will have a campus pastor. Well, that's OK. Now, think whether you're doing live preaching or video, 
that campus pastor is a it's a very, very tenuous role because they are not the lead pastor, but to everyone at their campus, they are the lead pastor, right? So they are functionally at their campus and with their and and then there's how do you do staffing for the children's minister? At the, st- at the campus, do they report to the campus pastor or do they report to the global um, children's minister? And, and how do you do coordination there? So that's another thing right there that you need to deal with. However, how do you, you know, that campus pastor at that campus, they are in charge. They are the shepherd. They are the one that everyone at that campus knows at, to be their pastor. They are the one that's in their neighborhood, incarnationally, missionally there, but they're not the senior pastor. So the number of people that can do that role really well, it's it's slim, which is why the best campus pastors are the ones that are are raised up from within the congregation. So that's why at new churches, we actually like we know that I've I've served as a campus pastor before, too. I've served in multiple multi-site churches, and that's why we created a course specifically for them, because it's just it's such a unique role. It's just you just don't learn how to do uh, from a textbook. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. It's interesting that you brought up this campus pastor and the relationship that they have with their individual site, because on the outside, when I see these multi-site congregations, I often associate them with the charismatic lead pastor that kind of draws people to that congregation and, yeah, is is very closely associated with the name of that church. So take Village Church, because we're talking about them for for an example, right? I know with their Denton campus, even if you look at who a campus pastor is at the Village Church, I mean, all their campuses are a thousand plus or even, you know, if not a thousand, not way more than that, at least around that area, around that number. And you take a look at that and you're like, hey, um, this is not like this is not like you're a hundred person campus, right? This a thousand person campus is pretty much a mega church, right? I mean, yes, maybe not technically over two or 3000 people, but functionally wise, they are pretty much there. And you look at how that campus has been able to transition well, well, it's because the people in that congregation have said, although this campus pastor wasn't preaching every week, you know, this campus pastor is the one who's done our weddings. This campus pastor is the one who does our funerals, who is there is the face who's doing our shepherding, who's leading the staff, who is in our neighborhood. Yes, we hear this preacher, a really fantastic preacher, Matt Chandler, you know, very often, but uh, what actually ties a church together, right? From the outside, from the outset, you know, we look at multi-site churches and we're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what church to go to. I want to go to that one because I love the preaching. You've listened to the podcast. You go there. But although and, and there there's a Pew Research study on what kind of attracts people to churches as well, and preaching is a huge component to it. But what causes someone to stick? It's not the preaching, right? It's the community. It's the relationships. It's the serving. 
It's the, this is my family. This is, and that's what causes people to stick. In your work, what have you found that has made um, the multi-site movement controversial? Yeah. So it really honestly comes to this whole, I mean, we talked about it earlier, the whole brand is this the big Walmart coming into my town? This is our church that served the neighborhood and everyone in our congregation has had to serve. And now I can go to the multi-site church and I don't have to serve. And so, I mean, those are obviously realities and and there are elements of consumerism that the multi-site church has perpetuated because it's because from the outset, you're like, oh, I can just kind of be a pew sitter. I can just kind of sit at the back and I don't need to be involved because there's so many people. However, if you look at the research, uh, multi-site churches, when they start a new campus, there's actually a surge in the number of people who do serve. So while newcomers may think it's a place that they can come and sit back and relax and not serve at all and just kind of consume and leave, there's actually a higher percentage of individuals serving in multi-site churches that go campuses because now it's, hey, we need everyone on board for this campus to start. So with my work, I work closely with church planting and multi-site church planting. If you want to start a new church, you got to gather a launch team. You got to get people on board and go out. And it's the same thing with a campus, right? The campus is pretty much like a church plant launch. You need to get a launch team for your campus and raise, you know, raise awareness in your community, gather people to fill all the different leadership roles that are required to serve and have that church service and and be a vibrant church, you know, not only on Sunday, but throughout the week in your community. It's kind of the same process. The difference is that that new campus, they don't have to worry about funds. They don't have to worry about fundraising. They don't have to even worry about, uh, you know, 501c3 or any a lot of the logistical things. They don't have to worry about flyers or handouts or marketing or branding. They don't have to worry about all of that stuff that just almost sometimes feels like an afterthought because it's all already set. So the campus and the launch team, they can re- the campus pastor and the launch team, they can really just focus on reaching the neighborhood without worrying about all the other stuff because that's already all set, right? So when it comes to multi-site, a lot of people think, oh, it's just this big personality moving into town and, you know, I don't want them to do it. But really the heart of every multi-site church that I've uh, that I've worked with and that a lot of the ones that I'm, you know, many that you'll know, their heart is to reach that community. So it's, so honestly, it's a lack of conversation probably uh, and, 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 you know, between that local church pastor and the new campus coming in being like, hey, why can't we work together? And it's people really feeling and having a scarce, you know, kind of a scarcity mindset being like, these are my people. This is my area. This is my town. But hey, even if your church, your church could not reach everyone in your area. So why not welcome multi-site churches coming in? Why not welcome new church plants coming in and adopt more of a kingdom mindset instead of this territorial mindset? Said well by a multi-church advocate. (laughs) But as a mainline denominational advocate, it still feels intrusive sometimes. Uh, Let's get down to the brass tacks, though, and that is, do we have studies that show who is it that multi-site attracts? Are they attracting more of the unchurched, or are they sifting people from congregations in the area already? Yeah, so Leadership Network, uh, my friends at Leadership Network, Warren Bird, Greg Ligon, those guys, they've come out with a few different studies on the effectiveness of multi-site ministry. So they're they're probably the leading research agency on the multi-site topic 
from the research perspective. Their studies are public. Their research does show that, you know, what I mentioned earlier about serving, you know, greater number of people serving, a lot of that is 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 true in a multi-site context. And they are they are pretty effective. Now, here's the thing, right? I mean, I love multi-site and I love church planting. I've been involved in both in several different roles. And my heart is not necessarily whether you go multi-site, whether you go church planting, my heart is for multiplication and that we need more churches reaching the lost and we need to be better at reaching the lost. So the form, it's it's up there and, and I'm fine with both, but it's really that heart of multiplication and reaching the lost. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I would say a big amen to that. In fact, I would add, uh, even though given who I am and kind of my ecclesiology, I'm not thrilled with the idea of one pastor uh, preaching through video or whatever to multiple congregations, I will admit that there are models of this in church history. That is to say, right after the English Reformation, Thomas Cranmer, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, would publish sermons, and they were ex- they, it was expected that those sermons would be read throughout churches in, in churches throughout England. So it was sort of a multi-church, multi-site idea way back then. The, so the idea that there is one person who's teaching will be will be the key to the to a number of congregations it's not necessarily a new idea in church history yeah i mean think back to the epistles who was the letter of ephesians written to <laughs> exactly right uh-huh and it was passed around to a number of churches right yeah and how about circuit riders too right so it's it's funny because i so i'm my background is in both worlds but currently i'm serving as a teaching pastor at a multi-site church right and i preach in both look we don't we don't do video at our this particular church, but I do preach the same message at both locations. I just got to drive between the locations. But I've also served in multi-site churches where my video would be cast to multiple locations as well, right? So it's it's just interesting to see the dynamic and just how important it is to say, hey, this is what we want to do. This is how we're going to reach the community, and let's go full force towards it. The way you describe the freedom that a multi a new multi-site has in terms of being able to concentrate on ministry and outreach combined with the idea that a lot of these multi-sites are now going to become independent congregations, it sounds like the multi-site model might be what one might call long-form church planting. In other words, it gives the the church an opportunity to get up and rolling before they then have to start worrying about all the legal and administrative stuff they need to worry about as an independent congregation. Yeah, I think the jury is still out on that. What what we see with Village, I had a frank conversation with Josh Patterson about this, and when he shared with me that they were going to be rolling their campuses off in the next few years, I then said, okay, well, are you going to are you going to start more campuses after that then? And he's like, no, we're going to do church planting. And then in the room was another one of my friends who is a he multiple, multiple campuses. And I was like, how about you? And he's like, no, we're going to keep on doing multi-site. Huh. Right. And it's this, it's this idea of and here, you know, let's roll back a few years pre everything blowing up uh, at uh, Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll. Right. Uh, so before that and while the church was continuing to grow, his succession plan was all of the campuses are going to be independent churches. Now, unfortunately, it ha- everything happened the way it happened. And yes, they all did end up becoming independent churches, if not shutting down. But that was this idea of, hey, there are some mega church, multi-site churches where the succession plan is to transition all the campuses off into independent churches. And then there are others who are saying, hey, we're going to do we're going to keep on doing multi-site. And then others are saying, we're going to do multi-site. So J.D. Greer, the Summit Church, they're like, we're going to do multi-site within a certain geographical radius. 
where people know the Summit Church and, you know, there's that relationship to us. But beyond that, we're then going to do church planting, right? So I think the the jury, I don't think the future is multi-site is going away. I think the, I think the future is a lot of churches are going to be embracing a both-and approach. I'm wondering if you find that a church or a multi-site church that is non-denominational makes any type of different choices that one than one that's affiliated with the denomination. Oh, man. So I, I work with a, a lot of different denominations with my work at Lifeway on this subject. And you have several denominations that are kind of avant-garde and said, hey, campuses are churches and we're going to assess campus pastors like we assess church planters. And they're going to be they're going to be treated that way from the denominational perspective. And then there are other denominations that are like, no, campuses are not churches. They fall under the governance of your church, and they're going to be treated such way. So there's uh, denominations. There, it's kind of this whole idea of how are we gonna how are we gonna view this, right? I even remember at a previous church I was at, we were going to start a campus in an area where 500 plus of our congregants were coming from, but there were several denominational churches in that region. Now we were starting because we wanted to start a campus cuz our people were coming there, but those churches were like, "Oh, hey, but this is our town, this is our area, we're the same denomination." So it really comes down to, "Hey, if you are doing multi-site, make sure that there's a lot of conversations that are happening with the local churches around you." Right? So in a denominational context, it definitely does become a little sticky because it's like we already have a den- we already have a Baptist church here, right? Or we already have a uh, AOG church here, or we already have one here and you know, but really the heart is how do you how do you reach the lost in that area? So non-denominational churches obviously don't have to deal with that. However, they should be talking to those uh, the churches that they are, you know, in the neighborhood that they are moving to. Yeah, and I do I also recall uh, in defense of the church planter who comes in an area uh, that's already been planted by the even the uh, churches of the same denomination. The the the, the I believe the st- statistical fact of the matter is the more churches you have in an area, the more people end up going to church. So it it, it is beneficial for the kingdom to have two or three maybe smaller churches than to try to get everybody on board to come to the same church with the same leadership and the same kind of corporate personality. Isn't some of the concern, though, I guess, about sheep stealing or whatever you want to refer to it as have to do also just like with financial concerns and not, frankly, like not losing money to like kind of like be able to sustain your church and keep the doors open and concerns that um, that money's just going to walk to whatever yeah. is perceived as the new and trendy thing. Yeah, and that that concern is rooted in a scarcity mindset, right? It's rooted in this mindset of, hey, the resources in the king, God's resources, hey, the kingdom resources are limited. <laughs> uh, God maybe doesn't own the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Uh, and and it's this idea of, oh, if that church comes in, what if I lose a family and then I, you know, I'm not going to have the offering and what if they don't do this? And right, and it very much is is rooted and driven by fear rather than faith, right? Faith that, hey, yes, some of my church members might move and might go there, but there's that's going to open up seats. That's going to open up room for us to keep on reaching the lost. So in terms of high profile, you know, a high profile conversation where this happened, I mean, just think of when Passion City Church, Louis Giglio, uh, planted in in Atlanta, and he's friends with Andy Stanley. Had been had been going to North Point, and a lot of the people that went to Passion City Church, they were people from North Point, right? And publicly, Andy and Louis had to wrestle through that, and it was this publicly it was this idea: Oh, have hey, 
Go if you want to go with uh, Louis, go with Louis. We want to bless them. We want to start this new church. And has North Point shrunk? Has North Point's kingdom impact shrunk since that? No, I think Atlanta is for the better now with the two churches, right? And you just see what's happening with both because of this idea of hey, instead of being you know having that scarcity mindset, let's be generous, generous that ki- the kingdom resources are abundant, and let's trust in God for that. So I put on my. My other hat as a person who sees that this sort of thing seems very possible and we can talk about God's abundance in in cities and in suburbs that are growing, uh, there does seem to be always room for one more church. But there are communities where that are shrinking and that are sta- or stable, stable or shrinking. I would argue, and I'd like to hear your response, that to plant a new church very well might mean the shrinking of other churches. So rural church planting, rural multi-site is something that I've been working a lot on with, and, and just there's been increased attention to it, obviously, since the election and since, you know, hillbilly elegy and a lot of this, you know, everything that's going on in our culture today. So recently I was talking to a church planter, right? He, uh, he moved back, he's moving back into his hometown, there's like 2,000 people there, and there are several denominational long-standing churches. But you even look at the 2,000 people that are there, how many of them are reaching? And a lot of times in smaller areas, smaller towns, it is these churches that, you know, it's these churches that have been around for a longer time, and the population, the congregation is typically older, right? In, in rural areas, obviously, there's this whole idea of millennials or college students not being able to, like having to go away for college and not wanting to return because there are no jobs to support them. So just think about that context, right? In in that area, how many people in those small towns are reaching teenagers, college students, young adults, young marrieds? What is the average age in congregations in smaller areas and smaller towns? Because what often happens with a new church or even with a new campus, you start reaching people who may have gone to church, but, you know, they're de-churched now because they didn't fit in or, or, or maybe, and it's this whole idea of, you know, think about a small group, right? How hard is it to bring a newcomer into a small group where everyone's been together for the last two years versus you start a brand new small group? How easy is it for newcomers or those not plugged in? How easy is it for them to get into that? Well, the same thing is for the church. For a brand new church or a brand new campus, it's this fresh experience of, hey, there's no politics here. There are no relationships here where everything's entrenched and this is the way we do it. And there's there's an opportunity for a fresh expression. Daniel, I'm just wondering as we close our conversation, what are new trends that you see in the church world that may or may not be on Christian's radar right now? So bivocational is definitely one of those trends that we've seen on our podcast. So the New Churches podcast that Ed Stetzer, Todd Atkins, and I do together. There's so many questions that have been submitted on bivocational ministry. And at one point I was like, why? Like, why is that? Why is that the case? And you just think about our the gig economy that we're in right now, right? The the whole idea of freelancing and how many individuals now in the Western world are <laughs> Uber drivers or they just have something they're doing on the side. And I even met, you know, a church planter. One, he's full-time, you know, sanitary engineer, you know, garbage truck driver, and he's done bivocational church planting via that. Another guy recently learned he's doing Uber, he's Uber driving awesome. while planting, right? And and the beauty of the gig economy, the whole freelancing is that um, that actually creates less pressure on the church planter 
or on the pastor to make sure they're doing what needs to get done to get finances in, right? And which sometimes is is less about going and trying new things and more about maintaining the status quo because they need to feed their family, right? It's just a it's just a reality there. And they're saying, hey, I'm gonna do this thing on the side to help provide for my family. And then what does it look like for us to just try and innovate new things? So the whole idea of bivocational planting, bivocational ministry is continuing to rise. And I think in light of our gig economy is going to continue to. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this great conversation. Anyone who has thoughts or feedback on it can go to Twitter. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts or on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where I ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy this week and where they can be found online. Mark, are you ready? Yeah, well, what's bringing me joy is the anticipation of my Carl Barth book party tonight at my home. Nice. So we're having, uh, I've just published a book with Erdman's on a, a, a short introductory biography of Bart and invited friends from church and from work, and we're just going to celebrate the advent of a new book. So that I'm looking forward to that. Well, I'll just say two things for the record. One, you scolded me one time for having an in anticipation precious moments. I and never two, said I was. you brought up Carl Bart last week. <laughs> so <laughs> Did I? It's okay. Oh, gosh. Not everyone has books come out, Mark, so yeah, we well, won't. Well, here's the deal. Uh, I hope it's not a surprise to any listeners that I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> and if it is, I'm sorry that this has been revealed. It's okay. Um, by the way, I guess I failed to mention that people can actually read an excerpt of your book if they do subscribe to CT. Where can people get the book and where are you online? Well, of course, the book's uh, available on Amazon. And uh, I'm available online. I'm on Twitter and Facebook with my name. And But the thing I actually work on the most is something called the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report. You can find that at christianitytoday.com slash the Galley Report, where I link and comment on articles that I have found interesting for one reason or another uh, every week. Daniel? Uh, I think it's going to be reading Mark's book. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I knew you were a man of fine judgment. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, I love I love this. Leslie Newbegin is my favorite missiologist, and uh, it's just such a joy to, yes, read what they've written, but just read more about the individual. So I'll, I'll definitely have to pick up your book. Uh, but since you're talking about books, I recently published No Silver Bullets, uh, five small shifts that will transform your ministry uh, with Brahmin and uh, B&H Publishing. And that came out September 1st. And what's what's really exciting, you know, obviously, Mark, I know you can attest to this. You have kind of a community of people that are reading and wrest you're wrestling with the ideas. You're having people read it and help endorse it and talk about it. But what's been really neat over this last month is the number of church staff leadership teams that have picked up the book for their entire staff. And they're like, hey, we're going to use this to develop a discipleship pathway for our church. And I'm like, I have no idea who they are, right? But they're emailing me or they're uh, sending, you know, they're they're emailing me or they're reaching out to me on Twitter. And it's just so encouraging to see what was birthed in my heart. And as I was kind of bringing this before the Lord has just been so far such a help to the church. Yeah, that is, that is always to me a pleasant surprise because I write a book because I'm interested and I imagine other people might be. Yeah. But when they actually write and say I read it and I really appreciate it, it's like, oh my gosh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Are you online? Yes. So you can go to danielm.com. That's Daniel. And then uh, my last name is two letters, im.com. And that's where you can find me on online, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and danielm.com slash no silver bullets. 
It's where you can learn more about the book. But the book is available uh, everywhere books are sold. Cool. All right. Since Mark picked one in anticipation, I will also do that, too. I went to a volunteer orientation last week for the Chicago International Film Festival. I've never been to it before, but um, another coworker here told me to or she suggested that I volunteer for it. So I decided to try that out. And I am I am actually not really a movie person at all, but I hope this gets me to see a couple more movies and also meet a lot of different people in Chicago because one of my favorite things to do is meet people. So I will be doing that. And you that. are really good at that, I will have to say. Yeah, just watch me at the party tonight. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Anyway, I am on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right. Morgan, I guess that's it for this week. And we thank our listeners for enduring another episode of Quick to Listen. <laughs> We don't think it was an endurance, though. This happened to be uh, one that was very interesting to me. This podcast is a production of Christianity Today. You can find our other podcasts by searching Apple Podcasts for Christianity Today. Remember to head to orderct.com slash quick to listen to subscribe to our magazine. This show is produced by Morgan and Richard Clark and Cray Allred. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And if you like the show, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We do read the reviews. We just had a, a, a one that came in today that was just very encouraging. So that helps us a lot uh, in a variety of ways, but in terms of our morale especially. So thank you. See you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.